Let's do this. What is virtualization? You're going to learn today. Innovate like a startup. Deliver like an enterprise. I hope you're coffeeed up and ready because it's going to be a great day. I know you're going to dig this. Oh, yeah. You're listening to the Virtually Speaking Podcast with Pedro Aero and John Nicholson. Good afternoon and welcome to the Virtually Speaking Podcast, episode number 208. My name is Pete Fletcher, a.k.a. Pedro Arrow, and joining me once again is my good friend, Mr. John Nicholson. John, you do not look like you're home. What's going on? Where are you? Oh, sorry, Pete. I'm just sitting here doing my my morning Tai Chi at the VMware Discovery Center in Palo Alto. Um, It's a very zen, happy place. Uh, Very relaxing. I've even got my my green tea in a can here. So I'm just going to, you know, repulse the monkey. Arthur versus Maine, you know, just, just relax here and, and, and have some contemplative thoughts. Nice. I'm sorry that I'm not there to join you this week. You know, there's nothing like being in Palo Alto, enjoying the green tea, uh, the peaceful tranquility, and of course, peanut M&Ms. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I can actually assure you, uh, the, you know, in accordance with the treaty that, uh, you know, followed after the great peanut M&M uh, shortage revolt of 2004, peanut M&Ms are on campus. I did find bags of them. Um, you know, you can really tell the health of a tech company by the by the break room because, you know, a great mentor once said to me that uh, if you ever go in the break room and all you have are regular peanuts, not peanut M&Ms, not cashews, not the good nuts, it's time to get your resume out. But no, VMware is in great financial health and going forward I found both cashews and peanut M&Ms in the break room this morning. So we're good to go. I love it. That's a great report. I appreciate that, John. So, John, as you know, we just had a great conversation about Kubernetes, the state of Kubernetes with uh, Miles Gray, our very own Kubernetes expert, and Google's Kelsey Hightower. Man, this was definitely one of my favorite episodes. Uh, It it was a little long, so we're going to make it a two-part episode. First part this week, uh, second part next week. Uh, big thank you to all the folks that submitted questions for Kelsey. We got the we got most of those on there. I tried to group some of the questions in the conversation, and then we played the videos for several of the video submissions. That can be found on YouTube. We'll show we'll have links to that in the show notes of the podcast. But uh, yeah, so enjoy this two part series starting now. Joining us on virtually speaking for the first time is from Google, Kelsey Hightower. Kelsey, welcome to the podcast. Yo, happy to be here. Hey, man. Yeah, so thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, Kels, uh, if you don't know Kelsey, he's a principal engineer at VMware. He's, uh, <laughs> no, not at VMware. He's at Google. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, Kelsey's been at Google for several years. He's been pretty heavy in the Kubernetes community. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you've seen some of his keynotes, some of his uh, sessions out there. He co-authored the book Kubernetes Up and Running with our very own Joe Bita. Uh, and, yeah, I, I, I think it's fair to say that he is the face of Kubernetes these days. Is that, is that a fair assessment, Kels? Uh, I hope not. You know, I, I'm not as involved in the Kubernetes community as I once was, but I definitely made a name for myself by helping other people kind of understand what it is. So, you know, I won an award or two, and I guess that was the reason why. Yeah, that's for sure. One thing I always appreciate is, uh, yeah, I, I like to, when, when you're looking up something new, when you're trying to learn something, it's always, I can always appreciate someone who can take a very 
complex process and and make it seem understandable. And I think that's definitely one of your attributes. So I, I've learned a lot from you over the years uh, trying to figure out, you know, Kubernetes, how it works. And uh, so I appreciate you for that. So gentlemen, uh, I thought it would be really cool to get a state of the union, if you will, for, for Kubernetes in general. Um, we've got, um, yeah, we've been talking about Kubernetes for a while on this podcast. Uh, but one of the things I think is a, a common denominator, if you will, you know, VMware has always uh, been a company that has abstracted the complexities, if you will, you know, whether it's storage, whether it's just compute uh, and abstracted all of the complexities and just made it so companies can do what they do best and not have to try to be experts on everything. And so I think that story is certainly parallel with with uh, Kubernetes. And I'd love to get your opinion at a very basic level, Kelsey, before we get too deep. Like, do you see the parallels between VMware and Kubernetes in that regard? Yeah, I think there was a, you know, for anyone that is familiar with virtualization, I'm assuming a lot of people listen this podcast are, um, you know, the whole goal was to try to decouple in some ways the machine from the machine, you know, they got the operating system, you know, before virtualization, pretty much one-to-one, you install your Linux distro and whatever memory and CPU you have, it all goes to that one OS. And there's no real easy way to compartmentalize or actually leverage that thing to do more than one operating system. And it got really tricky when you start to think about more than one application, you know, during the Red Hat days where, you know, you were installing things via RPMs. One thing that was never working well was this idea that you can install two versions of the same thing side by side, right? That was just this thing that we, I don't think we ever solved in any of our configuration management tools, whether that was Puppet, Chef, or Ansible. And I remember most people just stumbled on this pattern where you just do one app per virtual machine, right? We threw in the towel, Instead of these big machines and, you know, trying to compartmentalize things that way, we all decided to just say, you know what would be the easiest thing to do? Let's just give every app the whole machine. So we'll make the machine smaller. And I think when VMware got to the point where the API was good enough, we had automation tools, it became much easier just to think about packaging your app, all of its dependencies in like a VM image. And then that image would serve as the same way we think about containers today. I guess the only issue was is that there was no service discovery, right? So even though you had all these VMs, you still had to bring some additional tooling to the table. So I think Kubernetes in many ways, containerization in many ways, just picks up where we left off with that one app per VM pattern, as in things like service discovery and an API that I think is a lot more focused towards the application, but that's where we came from, I think. So from a, I guess that that pattern of simplicity of breaking that down again, as you say, from the, the virtual machine up to the container of, of driving that, it's been amazing following that journey and seeing the the speed at which we can deploy at. Where do you see, you know, we've and we've brought all these operational tooling together. I mean, some of these abstraction layers help with understanding resources or scaling or other things. Um, where do you feel that operational tooling is still lacking? Where, from a developer experience or getting applications out faster? Um, what is that final bridge we still need to cross? I think, honestly, there is no real solid application APIs when it comes to infrastructure, right? You can pick specific APIs like Heroku, Cloud Foundry. Those things are hyper-specific application APIs that are designed to say, if you give me an application in a specific format, then you get some guarantees about how it will run. Uh, you see this kind of pattern work really well in the mobile space. You don't got people messing around with like, figuring out how to deploy a mobile app to 100 million devices, yet every mobile developer in the world knows how to deploy an app with in-place upgrades to 100 million devices as many times as they want. 
In the infrastructure world, we don't have that because the starting point is so raw. It's so low level, right? You have a, a, a Linux kernel, a Bash shell, maybe an init system, and then it's like, good luck. <laughs> Go figure it out. Figure out what port you want to bind to. Figure out how to get yourself attached to a load balancer. Figure out health checks. You can do anything you want. Just turns out you got to do everything. And so I think that's the big missing piece. Kubernetes brings on maybe one layer towards that kind of specific application API. So Kubernetes has an opinion for things like um, you must be packaged in an application container. So we're not going to be dealing with the entire POSIX file system and, you know, that layout. We're just not doing that anymore. We're going to depart from that and just assume that your binary, static link binary, if you want to think of it that way, we're going to give you a much better contract. And so we're just moving further away from the machine. And the further away from the machine that we go, I think we get closer to something that looks a little bit more specific to an application. And of course, just like all good abstractions, they tend to leak. So from your perspective, then, it seems like there's a dichotomy between PaaS-type systems like Heroku and Cloud Foundry and those kinds of hyper-specific application-driven APIs and something like the Kates API, which is more infra-focused, but a little bit above the infra. But there must be a bridge between the two of those things, right? Yeah, I mean, you got to think about what people actually want. You know what I mean? As, as a platform developer, you want Kubernetes and etcd and ContainerD and CNI, and you want all of this flexibility. To be honest, you're just building your own platform and whatever API you give to that. For some people, it's going to be something like a Jenkins pipeline, which is a very wide and broad deployment pipeline. Some people will layer on something like Shippa or some other tool where you end up with a PaaS layered on top. But so I think what we got to do is just be very honest with ourselves. We think that these infrastructure tools are suitable for developers. It's not. It's just not actually the case. You know, what we're doing is essentially trying to present a power grid to the average user and say, yo, you know, you should be able to tap into <laughs> this big electric grid. Look at all this electricity and power. You can plug your toaster and you're going to kill yourself. That thing is dangerous. It's not meant for that. Most people want an API. They want an interface. They want a wall socket. They just want to know what the standard is, because the truth is, even though, you know, everyone's building these applications, most of them are roughly the same. You know, you bind to some port, you get some request, you do something in the middle, and you put something in a database and you respond. That is what the majority of the people are doing. So why, do ev why does everyone need to kind of rebuild the platform from scratch if we have 30 years of that experience? Right. So I, I like that analogy. I mean, I'm now just imagining three phase power, you know, is the equivalent of giving developers IaaS access. Like, yeah, you're just handing them three phase power. That's not that's, that's a, a terrifying and great analogy. <laughs> I, I was going to ask, you know, if if Kate's is like the first layer of abstraction and you can solve, you know, any complex problem with another layer of abstraction is something on top of Kubernetes, something like K native that takes some of those primitives and just bakes in some sane defaults and makes it easier to get up and running like they don't need to know exactly how to plumb a PV into a pod, or they don't need to know exactly how to set up a stateful set with, you know, pod disruption policies and all that kind of stuff that it's kind of just taken care of by that, that middleware layer, if you will. Do you think there's more to it than that? I think there should be more to it than that. And I think this is kind of the problem. So we suffer from backwards compatibility. You know, one thing that I've seen over the last eight years for a lot of late adopters of Kubernetes, really what's in their brain is, make the new thing work the old way, right? I got this app. It works like this. I got this router. I got this load bouncer. I need all of that new stuff to work with my old stuff. And so what happens is, you know, 
the vendors have to come in and we have to do all of this integration work. Because when we talk about Kubernetes distributions, think about the delta between what you find in open source upstream in something like GitHub and what the customer actually ends up running. And the majority of that, just like our Linux distributions, are just integration things to make it integrate well into the environments in which they have to play. And so I think a lot of times, yes, I think it's fair to call these things abstractions. But let's be honest, these are kind of layered band-aids to make the existing platforms conform to some of our new needs. But just like all iterative cycles, something's going to have to replace this and collapse the layers back down. So to me, I think Kubernetes offers us a lot of experimentation. The network layer is pluggable. You can choose your own load balancer. You can choose your own metrics. You can, you can choose everything. And so what you end up with is, I think, a great place to experiment. So this is why I love CRDs, right? The custom resource definitions, the ability to define your own workload type, like the one you mentioned, Knative. So Knative says there's a common pattern, a deployment, a service, maybe an ingress, and maybe some auto scaling, depending on how much traffic you have. Well, look, you need about five or six objects in Kubernetes and maybe some custom code. Whereas Knative says, let's take that pattern and make that a new workload type. So now you can just say, I have this container and I would like to, to scale it up and down and scale to zero when there's no traffic, right? That's a great experimentation. But in a place where I work, I work at Google Cloud, instead of taking Kubernetes and trying to run it for people, we've taken that Knative contract and got rid of Kubernetes, it's gone. And so now you have Cloud Run, which is a serverless platform. And if you look at the API, we support things like volumes. We support things like secrets and injecting them into a particular path. So very similar things that you see in a Kubernetes control plane, but the data plane is totally different. The layers are gone. They're collapsed. And so I think that's the beauty of Kubernetes is giving the industry a common set of tools, a framework for thinking. But I think to really push this thing forward is when we find patterns that work, be okay to be able to take it and re-implement it for that purpose. So machine learning systems, CICD systems, we're already seeing this with like edge computing where people have re-implemented parts of Kubernetes into K3S. They shrunk the whole thing down into a single binary so it runs well on the edge. That's where I think we're going to move this whole thing forward. Uh, you mentioned uh, Google Cloud Run there as, as sort of an analogy of where things could go um, or, you know, a, a different experience, I guess, on top of it. So to you, what is the difference between something like Cloud Run, which is Knative plus a, a bunch of other little bits and pieces around it that make life easier and something that's more like true paths like Heroku or something like that? Yeah, I think we started to blend in a lot of things. I remember when Heroku added container images. And I was one of those people that was new to serverless when people were making all the noise about serverless many years ago. And I just didn't get it because to me, when I look at something like Lambda or even the Heroku model where they were kind of pushing the whole 12-factor design pattern, right? Which is, you know, maybe you should be getting your configs from environment variables. Um, you should have all your dependencies defined in a log file. You should, you know not use local storage because then your application wouldn't be portable. But when you really think about what 12-factor was, 12-factor was really a description of the limitations of Heroku. It wasn't necessarily the only way to build applications. It was a way to build applications that would run well in Heroku, right? So if you were to adhere to their contract, then they can do all kinds of magical things for your application, like auto-scale it. If it were to crash to bring it back up, uh, it would start up fast. And then when you go to the extreme end of, of serverless, like the initial serverless, which was all based on functions as a service. And when I would squint at something like 
Lambda from AWS. Everything was about that function signature. And when you zoom out, you ask yourself, where did I see that before? And if you remember back in the day when we were all pushing like enterprise service bus, there's this concept of like on message handlers, right? The infrastructure will figure out how to route messages to different apps. And all you had to do was implement when a message showed up, you implement your logic, but don't worry about listening to sockets or setting up a broker or a client to a broker. Everything would just come to you. So I look at those like frameworks, Ruby on Rails, Express. Those are all frameworks yeah. to help you, you know, build applications in a certain paradigm. So let's get to Cloud Run. So some people need that. So in Google Cloud in particular, we have a thing called Cloud Functions. What some people may not know is that Cloud Functions, when you submit your code, right? That's that whole Heroku experience. No container images. No one wants to know anything about that. And so the thing is, someone needs to know something about something. These are still applications and computers work the way computers work. So in those scenarios, what we do is we take your code snippet. And since you're using our function framework, we know that we can actually take your code, wrap it in a worker instance and build a container. And we take that container and we put it in a container registry. And then the other thing we do is we run it on top of Cloud Run. Now for you, you say, oh, I'm just writing functions and mapping events to them. But at the end of the day, it's just a container running on Cloud Run. And since you have a concrete contract, it's much easier for us to configure other things like what events flow and you have the right framework to handle those events. So what we're trying to do is make there be no difference. So what we want to do is say, we believe, and I think now even Lambda has support for container images for delivering those function payloads or even your own custom application. So I think the industry is starting to agree. We need a universal packaging format. OCI, open container images, seem to be the perfect thing no matter what you're putting in it, whether it's a function or a normal web application that listens on port 8080 or even a background job that doesn't listen on any port at all. And so once we agree that we have that, so then the next thing is, well, how do you want to run it? Then it becomes down to semantics. Cloud Run supports the classic serverless model of a scale to zero. There's no traffic. I don't want to pay for this thing anymore. Well, in that scenario, then it just spins things down because it understands the contract and it understands that you have adhered to what a container can and can't do. But the nice thing though is, and the last thing I'll say here is, what we learned from Kubernetes that I think was missing from something like Heroku a application is actually a composition of logical things. Remember that virtual machine pattern that we talked about earlier? Apps actually need file systems. They need things like huge SSL certificates so that they can bind and, and serve HTTPS. Yeah. They need like images sometimes. So thinking that you're going to cram everything into the source doesn't really make a lot of sense for composition, especially when you start moving between environments. And I think the other thing we learned is that there's this such thing as like configuration can come from multiple sources. So you need to be able to specify those things at runtime and environment variables, I hate to say it, are not efficient for some of the things that you actually want to do. So I think what we decided was learning from Kubernetes, this place where we were able to experiment with different workload APIs. We went from pods to um, deployment objects to Knative. And what we've done is taken some of that Knative spec and one day, knock on wood, hopefully we'll also have the ability to run sidecars because a lot of people forget some applications need the help of something like Apache or Nginx in order to terminate traffic and do things like rate limiting and manage headers and things like that. So logical applications can be best expressed with a combination of two things, your application and your running configuration to give you a logical application. And I think that's where these things tend to separate from each other. So whenever you talk about 
the OCI image, you know, that's the, the, the universal container format post Docker file that's been ratified by the community. And there's also the configuration that goes along with it whenever it gets deployed into dev or staging or prod or different clouds or wherever you're deploying this thing, there's going to be individual customizations for each of those locations. And there needs to be a central store for that maybe not even central, but a place where that configuration is stored. And you mentioned maybe extending OCI spec or it could live in a GitOp repo or something like that. Do you have any sort of opinions about the the configuration and where it lives with respect to the actual application code itself and how it's packaged? Yeah, I think this is where the whole world gets tricked up every single time. <laughs> I think a lot of people feel, especially when they're new to a platform, they want to trade, you know, they think they're trading complexity for convenience, but then it becomes impossible to do operational things later. So this idea of click to deploy, y'all remember that? You know, just click this one button and then your production ready application will run and it will never break. And it's like, well, no, some environments are gonna have to tweak the config just a little. Some environments I'm going to need three nodes, some I'm going to need five. So what do you express all that? So that's a human um, kind of discussion or collaboration with the infrastructure. And so I like the fact that it's decoupled. I think this is where Docker got a little tricky because people started to abuse Docker's metadata to define things like networking attributes, right? Listen to this port. It's like, why are you allowing the application to tell you what port it's going to listen on? That should be a configuration because there might be port conflicts, mm. right? You may not be allowed to listen on port 8080 for security reasons. And so if that's a hard-coded attribute of the app, then again, we're decoupled back to the machine again. And so a lot of the, this work that we've been doing is we're trying to move away from assuming that your app is going to run on a Linux POSIX thing on an Intel processor, right? Modern languages these days can be recompiled for things like ARM. Maybe there is no traditional TCP stack and you're going to have to listen on a Unix socket. And so if we keep the apps flexible, keep them as agnostic as we can from the operating system, then what we can do is shift the operations or shift the config of like how to run outside. So we went from init scripts where we're writing like whole bash scripts to like start an application and do all the right things to more of a declarative approach. And I think that's been the biggest game changer for most people, whether you're coming from the infrastructure point of view or the dev point of view. You're just now saying, I want this thing. I want three of them. It can listen on this port. I need these volumes. So you finally have a way to see the entire contract of the app, so much so that we can give it to a third party, AKA Kubernetes, and let it figure out how to make that so. And I think that's why we have to keep these things decoupled because guess what? One day you're gonna to wanna to move platforms. And so the good news is since we have these things decoupled today, I can take a container that ran great on Docker on a VM and give it to Cloud Run and expect that it's actually going to run even though the configuration is going to be different. Nice. Speaking of moving, I did get us. I did get several questions uh, from folks uh, when they heard you were coming on about just just cloud in general, like multi cloud specifically. Uh, I'm curious. You know, there's there's multiple clouds, and then there's multi cloud. And I know you work for Google, uh, which is obviously pretty heavy in a very specific cloud. But I'm curious what your opinion is um, about multi cloud in general. I've been watching like the Mandalorian, so excuse me if I get all Yoda on y'all. <laughs> because when you when you break down the root principle of discussion around multi-cloud, I always ask myself, like, what are people actually talking about? A lot of times when I hear people use buzzwords like multi-cloud or DevOps, 
it's kind of a substitute for I don't know. <laughs> and it's okay, right? But the, the minute we start to remove the buzzwords, we actually start to talk about what are we really dealing with? So let's think about before we started saying multi-cloud. Number one, what is cloud? Typically, it's a data center that typically is API-driven infrastructure, right? So that usually is going to be the rawest definition of cloud. Some services can be as low level as IaaS infrastructure as a service and as high level as like a speech-to-text API. But ideally, it's self-service, probably going to be charged per use or some accounting mechanism similar to that. So when I hear people say multi-cloud, the reason why I think most people are saying, I don't know, instead of multi-cloud, because if I told them, what would you do if you had two data centers, right? You got two data centers separated by two continents. So all of your classic tricks don't work. You can't run a long ass cable and connect the two. You now have to think a little differently. I take that back. You can run a long gas cable sure under C, but it's very expensive. <laughs> but most people can't afford that. But if you have two data centers in two different continents, you think a little bit differently about it. So then I ask people, let's say you have uh, servers by HP, you know, those nice little blade center chassis. You got your NetApp, you know, storage or your EMC storage appliance there. You have your F5 load balancer. And then you put VMware on there, so now you got this nice hypervisor stack. So for many ways, you've gotten something very equivalent to the cloud. Now you have this kind of API surface for managing things in that software-defined data center. Right? And it works pretty well. But no one ever says multi-vendor when we think about a single data center, even <laughs> though I mentioned all of the gear came from different vendors. And why don't we say multi-vendor? We don't say multi-vendor because most of them just connect via Ethernet, right? All of these protocols, even though one's providing storage, load balancing, it just works. So we don't think about the vendors at all. We just focus on connecting the dots and then using the platform. The minute we add another data center to the mix, well, if it was only five feet away, we would run a fiber cable to it. And we probably would never say multi cloud, right? We'll just say, yeah, we have just connected these two networks. It will be no different than connecting things that are across two different racks. So what happens in, in the cloud is the first time most people ever experience a situation where they can't bridge the gap physically. And their brain goes into this mode of, I have no idea what to do. If I write my data on-prem, where the current system of record is, the network latency is too high to do real-time replication like I would do between two nodes on different racks. And so since they have never done that before, they don't even know how to approach this problem. They just say multi-cloud. If you took all the cloud providers in the world, one day, let's just say magically, there was a uh, universal law that said, all cloud data centers must be connected by high-speed fiber, and there can be no egress charges between the cloud providers, meaning you're back to normal networking, right? So I don't think people would say multi-cloud anymore. I don't think people would do it. You would just go to say, hey, I like Kubernetes and GCP, click. I like DynamoDB and Amazon, click. And if someone told you that the latency was going to be less than two milliseconds, I don't think you would actually say multi-cloud anymore. You would just use the different vendors because of net network connectivity. So I think I mentally for myself, I boil multi-cloud mostly down to slightly different APIs for getting things done, but that's always been the case in your data center. Those, all those vendors are slightly different APIs too. Most of them have different billing models. And so the network is the one universal thing that makes people call it multi-cloud. I like that. It's, it's latency and egress charges that are the defining the defining aspect of multi-cloud, not ah, the API is a little different. Well, I think there could be a little more to it as well. So yeah, the, the APIs are different, but I would argue the reason people are saying multi-cloud is they don't want the vendor lock-in, right? You touched on people never talked about multi-vendor before. So they want their application to be portable across these things, whether they fall out with Microsoft or whoever it is that their current cloud provider is, and they want to take their toys and go home. So they want to go somewhere else. 
But I think it's a little more complex than that because in InfraLand, whenever you're talking about applications, they live inside that VM, right? They're not tightly coupled into the infra. Whereas whenever you run something in, say, GCP or Azure or whatever, the higher up the stack you go with your services, the higher you know, closer to the API service of the application itself, the more you are tying your application into that specific cloud. And to me, that's why, you know, Kubernetes has become this fabled thing that is, that's that generic API that you have underneath all of these clouds, on-prem, off-prem, whatever, that you can standardize upon. And it means that you can take your toys and go home. So let's talk about that leaky abstraction thing. So I've worked with thousands of customers over the years, and I love to believe that story. Here's a problem. They built this app. It requires AVX 512. That's an Intel instruction set for doing certain mathematical yep. calculations super fast, right? Hey, this is just a Kubernetes cluster. App goes and like, hey, this is the wrong CPU architecture. I don't see AVX 512. It blew up. You're like, oh, what happened to portability? The thing is, Kubernetes just says, make your decisions. If you can get the exact same server, the exact same network card, the exact same starting position in terms of where you plugged in top of rack, Right, because if I'm plugged into a Cisco port and a Juniper port, there actually might be some differences. Maybe the MTU setting is different, right? There, there, there's so many subtle differences when it comes to infrastructure that you know the lock-in is really a form of configuration, right? If I find a config that works for me, whether it's on-prem, whether it's in the cloud, now the question becomes, where else can I get that configuration? So that's one form of lock-in where I found a configuration that works for me, so I'm locked into it because it works. Right? We typically get locked into things that work. And so when you have to go to a different environment that doesn't have that configuration, now you're in trouble. And I've seen this even on-prem. You go to order some more SSDs. They tell you, we don't have any more of the Samsung you know, 5030s. We're out. Those are discontinued. You're like, oh my God, we're screwed. Because the new drives don't have the same cache as the old drive and the database is behaving weird. Now I got to go spend a bunch of time trying to find a comparable C, uh, storage device that can replace the other one. You got locked in at the storage layer. Mm. So I think really the, the lock-in is... For the most part, if you don't use anything that helps you go fast, let's say you stay away from all innovation, right? You avoid anything that's not more than five to 10 years old, right? That's your best chance at portability. Now, you're right. For some applications, you can just say, go build, and that thing will just make average system calls. System calls are a commodity at this point. From like Red Hat 6 to Red Hat 8, you're probably going to be fine. But there are some things that help you go fast. And then people leverage those things, and then that creates a lock-in. And the last thing I want to say here is there's another problem, lockout problem. The lockout problem is almost worse than the lock-in problem. The lockout problem says, well, we've gotten so far with this vendor, they did a good job for us. Oracle typically gets a bad rap here. Now, Oracle might say, look, we do all this role-level encryption, all these features you all asked for over the last 20 years, we added it all to this database, making it super complex, but it works. Now, that is a form of lock-in because you got the configuration you asked for and no one else wanted that, MySQL or Postgres. But here's where the lockout happens. When that same vendor says, you can't run that database in VMware or you can't run that database in Google Cloud, now you're getting a different situation, which is I'm now locked out of the next thing, mm. right? Or you're not allowed to put this in a container because we haven't approved that yet. And so I think you're always battling with these two things. And also remember, vendors aren't the only ones that do this. Y'all have worked with a teammate 
that built some custom thing <laughs> and you can't do anything without that custom thing supporting it first. And that's another form of lock-in or lock-out depending on how you look at it. <laughs> the uh, customer gets one of the votes about where an application runs, one of them. So that is uh, a good point. All right. Did you want to take that anywhere else, Miles, before we move forward? No, I think Kelsey just blew my mind a little bit. I'm trying to absorb my, that. Miles is also worried about uh, saying okay. something that will trigger uh, Larry Ellison's fleet of lawyers to come uh, <laughs> fly to North Ireland. Now, now for, for the record, I do agree with Miles. I, I agree with Miles on a couple of points. One is the container image is portable, right? It's a layered file system, ideally with an application that makes an expected set of system calls. That is a good idea, universally helped everyone think about adopting different platforms, all the way from a VM running Docker up to some serverless platform. I think that has been a beautiful advancement because the way we were doing things before, you had to almost rebuild a whole app. You want to do JBoss, and then you want to switch to Ruby on Rails, do everything over from scratch. That mm. That is just too painful. But when we start to think about applications, I mean servers, we still have these nuanced things like the metadata service. Like I remember the first time, I used to be a VMware customer. I had everything all set up. I used to manage a team of open source zealots. They were like, everything must be open source. And I said, <laughs> you know what? I'll give y'all two weeks, buy whatever you need. They bought all the uh, free BSD storage thing. They made their own little network storage thing and they put some open stack and they did all of this stuff. And I was like, but does it work though? No. It wasn't working. Things were locking up. And I said, hey, we're done here. Yeah. Call VMware. Get me some live motion. Get me some, get me some VMware. And then once we put the whole thing in place, we were good to go. But I remember when we had to move to the cloud and we were thinking for the first time, we got these machine images. We were using Packer at the time, right? So you would build up your, you know, your machine image. Uh, VMware did this really cool thing with link clones. The machine would spin up super fast oh, yeah. because it can take that, make the modifications. Like, yo, this is dope. And then so all of us thought we could just migrate that machine image to the cloud. And it turned out, and I really learned this lesson even more when I worked at CoreOS, because we were building an operating system and we had to integrate with all the cloud providers. It turns out none of the kernel settings are the same between the cloud providers. They all have this custom metadata service that wires up into the authentication framework. Some of them even bootstrap their node very different than all the others. And it turns out there's so many customizations that go into a machine image, you almost can't use them verbatim. You almost need to say, oh, where are you taking this image? Throw away a bunch of stuff, add a bunch of stuff. Now it's ready to run as an AMI on AWS. Right. I mean, that's why whenever you go to Ubuntu's download page, there's not one Ubuntu image. There is many Ubuntu images. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, as as far as standardization, I I think it's safe to say that you know, and I know VMware stands behind this, but I, I would say that Kubernetes is the Kubernetes API has become the de facto standard in the industry. Um, from a from a future looking perspective, is that going to be the case moving forward? I know Kubernetes is going to be around for a while, but what do you see it looking like? Uh, you know, five years from now compared to now. All right, hate to do it, but I'm going to cut it there and and pick it up next week. Uh, yeah, as as we mentioned, th this is a pretty uh, pretty extensive episode. Kelsey spent at least an hour and a half talking to us, and uh, it was really good. And if I must say so, it just got better and better. So next week, uh, not only does he answer that question on Kubernetes future, uh, goes into a couple of other really good questions, and he even takes time to answer several listener submitted uh, questions around the Kubernetes space. So be sure to look out for that one next week. 
And that music tells me it's time to go. So if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email at podcast at vmware.com. You can subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice by searching Virtually Speaking Podcast. You can catch this in all episodes at vspeakingpodcast.com. A big thanks to Miles and Kelsey for joining us this week. We're back next week with part two. But until then, bye for now.